Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 233 being recorded on Wednesday, August 20th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Today on the show, we're going to take a a break from the summer of blue chip guests, and we're going to catch you up on the news. We did have our hot take on Amazon's results, so that was one of the big uh, news items that we we covered about uh, three episodes ago now. And today we had the U.S. Census Bureau. They put out their quarterly e-commerce data, so that's exciting. And Jason, I'm excited to learn from you because this data always is super confusing to me. Uh, And in fact, there's been a lot of You know, some people have said online that this data proves that we're not seeing this 10-year acceleration and, oh my God, the the economy is doing terrible or we're in a V-shape. So everyone's kind of able to look at this data and draw wacky conclusions. Why don't we start with a primer? I know you kind of have a really good grasp of this data and I just kind of see it scroll by. So primer us on this or a segment I like to call Jason explains the U.S. Census data so that even Scott can understand it. Oh, God, I I didn't realize the bar was that high. It is. uh, U.S. Census data for dummies. I'll I'll go ahead and put that out there. And I'm the dummy. All right. (laughs) I accept the challenge. If you can't understand it, for the record, the U.S. Census Bureau is probably doing something wrong, which could be the case. But yeah, so to me, this is a really exciting data set, and it comes out monthly or Much of it comes out monthly, and I am always eagerly anticipating it. But then right after it comes out, I'm always disappointed because everyone on Earth quotes it, and it's so easy to misunderstand and misquote, and people aren't careful about how they attribute what they're reporting, that, per your point, every month you see, like, two people alleging they're using the same data and coming up with wildly different conclusions. So... In a nutshell, the the U.S. Census Bureau does a monthly survey of retailers, and they ask those retailers to report their sales. And there's a legal obligation to comply with a portion of the census. And I may have this wrong, but I want to say that they're legally obligated to report their sales on a quarterly basis to the U.S. Census Bureau. And then the, the U.S. Census Bureau asks them to report a subset of their sales on a monthly basis, which is voluntary. And so basically they use that voluntary data to come out with sort of a monthly hot take. And so this is this has higher standard deviation. It has a higher um, likelihood of error, but this is the freshest data. And so it, it comes out about 15 days after the close of a month. You get the July data usually on like August 14th. So that's exactly when we got the monthly data this uh, month. And so that product is called the Advanced Monthly Retail Trade Report. And it's sometimes called MARTS, which is Monthly Advanced Retail Trade Report. Then separately, they parse out that quarterly data into monthly data. And it's more accurate, but it's slower. 
So usually at the same time they report the advanced monthly retail report for, say, July, they'll report the monthly report, which is more reliable, but the freshest data in it is likely to be June. So it's usually like 45 days behind. And people, although if you really cared and if you were talking about like years worth of performance, you should totally be looking at the monthly report, not the advanced monthly report. In our industry, people almost exclusively look at the advanced monthly report because they like that freshness. And then there's a third product. So both of these products, the advanced monthly report and the monthly report, break the data down into a bunch of segments. So you can see just apparel or just department stores or just sporting goods, for example. And one of the segments is called non-store sales. And the biggest piece of non-store sales is e-commerce sales. But there are other things that are in non-store sales. If there are any catalogers left, they would be in non-store sales. That's what this category was originally for, was for people that did mail catalogs. Auction houses are still in the non-store sales. And the way that e-commerce is counted in non-store sales is kind of imperfect. So there's some definite wiggle room when an omni-channel retailer like, like Walmart or even more Target, when... If, if Target was perfectly responding to the census survey, the e-commerce sales that they collected and fulfilled from a fulfillment center, which is only about 25% of Target's e-commerce sales, would be non-store sales. And the sales that they fulfilled from a store, which would be uh, 75% of all of their e-commerce, would actually look like retail sales, not e-commerce sales. And so in, the non-store sales number is a very imperfect surrogate for true what you and i would think of as e-commerce like because we would probably define it as any anybody that paid their money online so that those are those are these monthly data sets there's the the advanced one and there's the monthly one and then that the data is broken out into a bunch of uh, things there's the categories and the categories are frankly imperfect so for example there's a category for automotive and automotive parts for a variety of reasons, you and I might want to take car sales out of an, out of the number, but we probably would prefer not to take car part sales out of the number, but we can't break those two out in their categories. So people kind of imperfectly mess around with the categories. They also have three versions of the data. They have unadjusted data, which is the raw monthly data. They have what they call seasonally adjusted data, where they try to normalize the data for the the traditional holiday spikes that we have in retail. And so when they, with seasonally adjusted data, the number that they give for March isn't the actual number they got for March. It's adjusted by some normalization factor so that it could be compared with December in that same year. And then there, some people then adjust the numbers for inflation. So there's inflation adjusted numbers. So when someone says, hey, the U.S. Census Bureau came out with data last month and retail sales were up, 6%, there's a bunch of things you need to know. You need to know, is that a seasonally adjusted number that's up 6%? Is that a adjusted for inflation number that's up 6%? Which retail number is it? Is it the retail trade class? Uh, A lot of the, the retail definitions include restaurants, for example, or is it retail without restaurants? Is it retail without automotive, which is another category that they have? So you need to know when they say retail what they mean. You need to know 
if it has one of these adjustment factors and you need to know whether it was the regular monthly data or the advanced monthly data. And so for all of that, those varieties, three people will all, you know, go to the U.S. Census Bureau on Wednesday morning when the data comes out. They'll pull a different number and they'll quote it. And on Twitter, you'll go, huh, those three different numbers for the same thing. And it's because none of those three people explained all the the details behind which number they chose to grab. Is the monthly advanced report, does that mean advanced as in more detail or advanced in here's a sooner? It's a, it's a less accurate pre view of the data we'll have next month. Right. And have they ever revealed what N is like, how many businesses are they talking to? Is this like four in, in Tuscaloosa or is this? Yes. So for the actual (laughs) census data that businesses are legally obligated to comply with, they do disclose exactly how many businesses are in that number. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. The advanced one is more variable from month to month. So they generally don't do that. But what they do, if you're a statistician, is they have an uncertainty factor that they show you for each number. So you can kind of see, like, you can see when the the uncertainty factors are high because they have a smaller sample set that month, for example. Is it always the same stores or is it very no it could like so you know a store again could just like the guy responsible for filling out the survey could just miss a month does jeff bezos fill out the survey for amazon yeah Uh, and that's a so you could imagine and the the u.s census people are trying really hard to get they work really hard and this is a super valuable service that they provide i'd say for free we all pay for it through our taxes but the you can imagine that who feels responsible for filling out this survey wildly impacts how they interpret the questions and respond to them. Right. And even though like some of these are like legal requirements, you could imagine that people imperfectly respond. And if you're a small business and you imperfectly respond, you can imagine that no one's going to get around to enforcing that. Right. And then, so to make the data more accurate, they sometimes proactively fill in data when they don't get data, right? So if Walmart doesn't report, they might go ask Walmart for the data. But if, you know, Joe's Star Wars memorabilia doesn't report, they're obviously not going to proactively go get that. So they do their best to make it accurate. They they have very valid mathematical model that they're pretty transparent about if you're into that sort of thing. But my big plea is just... Understand what you're looking at. The advanced look, the monthly look, uh, there's another look called the quarterly that we'll talk about in a second. Understand whether it's seasonally uh, adjusted for inflation. Sometimes the inflation adjustment they call the real retail sales, which is annoying. And then if it's, you're going to see it in one of two ways. It's either going to be a percent or it's going to be dollars. If it's dollars, it's the sales they think that happened that month. If it's a percent, it's a, that's the a percent change. And then the next thing you have to know is, are they talking about month over month change or year over year change, right? So we just got the July data in the advanced report. Is that percent from June to July or is that percent from July 2019 to July 2020? And side note, the month over month is almost never useful or relevant in retail. Yeah. Yeah, you got to look at your... So lots of people report month over month. I could care less. It's really hard to accurately seasonally adjust for a single month. 
Like you can seasonally adjust over the course of a year, but you could make the numbers really say whatever you want if you start messing around with trying to compare month over month in retail. So a way more valid number is that that year over year number. And it also, someone posted an awesome graphic that I'll, I'll try to put in the show notes. This is, a version of this comes up in COVID right now, right? And so, you know, people will publish like month over month testing to show, or month over month negatives to show how well we're doing. And so uh, someone took a baseball box score and posted it inning over inning. And it like, one team won the game 10 to nothing, but in the inning over inning stats, it looked like a tie, <laughs> right? Because they each had one good inning, but the, the one good inning for the one team was wildly different than for the other team. I'm not explaining that very well. But anyway, all of this data is free. It's all available on the U.S. Census uh, website. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So you can download it. You can read a PDF where they try to analyze it for you and they do a pretty good job. You can download a, an Excel file. If you want all of these slices, you'll have to download a bunch of files. They have an API you can exercise if you want to pull the data yourself. And they do even have like a pretty good interactive charting tool. So you can kind of click the options you want, pull a data set, and then uh, graph it visually all on the free census.gov website. So I'll put a link to that. There are other tools you can use to pull the data. There is a, uh, the St. Louis Fed has have this really good website that they call FRED, and FRED's an acronym for something. But they pull a bunch of public data sources, one of which is this U.S. Census Bureau. So they have like a free reporting tool that uses that API, and it, it lets you slice and dice the data. I use a commercial tool called YCharts, which is you have to pay for it, but it, it lets you slice and dice the data pretty quickly and easily. And then Google has a really advanced data visualization tool, and they load the data into Google, which is cool. The one bummer is the Google tool is not real time. So if you want to slice and dice it the morning the data comes out, like it's probably going to be a week or two before the data makes it to, to Google. And I don't know why that is. It seems like Google should be able to get real time data from the API. So lots of ways to slice and dice the data. The data is super useful. I promise I'm going to shut up in just a second and talk about what the data is telling us right now, which is super fascinating. But there's one other U.S. Census report that people should know about. So I mentioned that that non-store sales in these monthly products is not a very good uh, surrogate for e-commerce, even though a lot of uh, people will wrongly just call it an e-commerce number. Um, and it's a separate category. So they're showing non-store sales is a different category than department stores is a different uh, category from sporting goods. And you may say, but Jason, there's e-commerce sales in sporting goods and department stores. And I would say, gosh, you're right, Scott. It would be great if they, if they um, pivoted the data and showed the e-commerce data for each category. And so the good news is uh, about a year ago, the U.S. Census Bureau started trying to do that. They said, in addition to these two monthly reports, on a quarterly basis, we're going to try to more accurately report just e-commerce sales without the auctions and these other things in them. And we're going to try to report it on a, a e-commerce on a category by category basis. And we're going to try to include the sales fulfilled from stores and the sales fulfilled from a fulfillment center. So we have imperfect data. The law doesn't require people to report everything we need to report that. But we're going to do our best to do this experimental quarterly e-commerce report. And so we now have received four of those quarterly e-commerce reports, the most recent one of which came out yesterday. 
So it'll be three months before the next one. And so in addition to this monthly data, we also get this quarterly e-commerce report. And, you know, somewhat annoyingly, you can't compare the monthly non-store sales number to the quarterly e-commerce number because they're both a different time period and a different measurement methodology, if that makes sense. Got it. So now you know about all the products and you know about some tools you could use to get them, right? So I, here's why I've been excited about the data. It, you know, it's, it's one of our best real-time reads on how COVID is affecting uh, the, the retail economy. Uh, you, you'll recall we did a show a couple months ago and uh, we, we had a spirited debate about what shape the recovery would take. You were an optimist and said it would be V-shaped. And I think I said it would be kind of checkmark shaped or swoosh shaped, that it would dip very bad and then it would take a more gradual time to recover. Five years. Five yeah, years yeah. I'm not sure I the time horizon on it, but 20, I, I said it would not be symmetrical. To be honest, people have been misusing this monthly data to sort of make both cases. And so it's been... so. I, the, the monthly data for, for June, the advanced monthly data for July came out late last week. I pulled it all and tried to do some processing. And so by processing, what I mean is there are certain categories that we don't think are, are normally associated with retail. So I took automobiles out. I took restaurants and bars out, which are in a lot of the the U.S. Census Bureau's definitions of retail. They often call it retail and food service, for example. And it's not going to shock you, but like automobile sales were one of the most impacted by COVID, at least for a short period of time. And restaurants and bars have been the most impacted by COVID for a very long period of time. So when you look at the numbers with those in, it looks like COVID had a very severe effect on on uh, retail. In fact, it makes it look like we had the deepest dip we've ever had and that it it's lasting a fairly long time because we still have a big a huge dip in in uh, restaurants and bars for example. But so when I pull all of that out and I just look at what I'm going to call core retail. So US commerce's definition of retail minus automotive, gas, and um, restaurants and bars, but other, but including other food like grocery, um, the numbers are way better than you're hearing from a lot of sources. And they, they frankly, like, to me, demonstrate pretty clearly that retail has had a, a very V-shaped recovery, which is annoying because it means that you were right. But like most people, I'm thrilled that you were right since you were the, the optimist. I'm uh, grinning ear to ear. I've got my Cheshire cat grin on right now, if you can't see me. Yeah. But so on this core number, which again is a JSON calculated number, it doesn't, the US, you can't just download this. There was only one month where year over year sales were negative. In April, year over year sales were down 6.12%, which is the deepest decline since they started recording this. So that's a very deep recession. But the month before that, sales were up. 6.75%. And the month after that, sales were up 3.17%. And to put things in perspective, the historical average over the last 30 years is that these sales tend to be up between 35 and 4% every month. 
the year-over-year data, on average, retail grows at about 35 or 3.75%. The month before April, the March number was an abnormally large number, and the May number was back to normal. And then June and July have been way above normal. They've been 8% in June and 8.6% in July. So we had a historic low, but it was only for one month. And I said, well, gosh, we talk a lot about the 2008 recession. What did that look like? The peak was almost exactly the same. We were down 6.02%. So we bar- COVID barely beat the 2008 recession, but for all intents and purposes, we'll call them the same uh, depth. But in 2008, we were negative for 15 straight months. In COVID, unless we have a, a, a new, a new inst- reemergence, we were only down for one month. So this is a wildly fast recovery slash V-shaped recovery for retail, which is generally great news. We're going to talk about that through another lens of all these earning reports in a minute. Like that being said, there are clear winners and losers, and there are categories that have been absolutely blitzed by this and, and haven't quickly, quickly recovered. Right. And so, you know, people still aren't buying gas. People, you know, still aren't going to bars and restaurants. Department stores are still down 13%. Like people haven't, they peaked at down 50% and they're still at negative 13%, right? So there are some clear losers in here, but you know, when you roll it all up and you kind of create the synthesized core retail number, it's, it's actually a, a much better story than w- what I think you're generally hearing in the mainstream sort of retail press. Awesome. Does that sh- surprise you, Scott, or is that, uh, it doesn't, I, I, uh, you know, as the guy that predicted it, I'm excited that the data shows what what it kind of felt like from the, the cheap seats. Yeah. So one last thing then. So then this quarterly e-commerce number, it came out yesterday. And the key thing to take away from that is in Q2, so April, May, June of 2020, e-commerce sales, as counted by the U.S. Department of uh, Commerce, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau, was up 44.4% year over year. So Q2 2019 and Q2 2020 up 44.5%. So uh, a historically high increase in e-commerce, which should shock no one. A bunch of stores were closed and out of convenience, a bunch of people, people extra people wanted to flock to e-commerce. So not sh- shocking that it's a huge number. But and prior to a- that, we were kind of at a... They were at like a 12 to 15, kind of like Comscore and all those other guys. Is that is that right? Yeah. They're so kind close. Of call, yeah. yeah. So generally call it like 15%. So a very healthy quarter. For comparison, using the same data set at the same time, retail was down 3.4% for that quarter. So that's where the peak of that dip happened. And so, you know, at at a time when, when retail lost ground, e- e-commerce tripled down. Um, and... Based on the U.S. Department's definition of retail, which does include things like automobiles and gas, that the e-commerce sales represented 15.1% of all retail. So that's up dramatically. Like, I think Q1 might have been like 12% if, if memory serves. So, so 15% e-commerce penetration is good. But a lot of people quickly look at that 15% and say, huh. I feel like I've seen a McKinsey report that said 36% of all uh, retail sales were e-commerce during COVID. 
what the heck? Like, why is this number so much lower? And a bunch of contrarians, like, use this data to say, like, oh, all the people saying that, like, e-commerce, you know, got jump-started by 10 years from COVID are, are full of it. You know, 15% is kind of a nothing burger. And, and so, again, the devil is in the details. It's, it, it all depends on your definition of retail. So we just talked about, like, gas is in that number, which there's very little e-commerce sales for gas. There's a little bit. If you go back to Jason's spreadsheet for core retail, then about 20, we peaked at about 26% of core retail was e-commerce during COVID. So that's more healthy. And if you use Forrester's definition of retail and their data, which is what this, this popular McKinsey chart used, Forrester has the most digitally friendly definition of retail. So they include things like pay-per-view video, ticket and event sales, which I know those are not very much right now, but normally they're, you know, a meaningful number and all the apps purchased from the app store. And, you know, tickets, video downloads and apps are a hundred percent e-commerce, right? So when you add three healthy size categories that are a hundred percent e-commerce, it's going to juice that number, right? So the, so Jason's core number of 25 to 26% using that Forrester methodology starts to feel like 31 to 35%. They're actually all based on the same data. It just matters what you're including or excluding from your your definition of retail. And I would highly encourage everyone to remember that these are all wildly imperfect numbers with wildly imperfect methodologies for collecting them. So they're interesting from a directional standpoint, but I I certainly wouldn't take any of these numbers to the bank, which is why, in some cases, I'm talking about ranges. Cool. Uh, Thanks for, uh, I got in a Twitter battle with someone, and that makes sense now. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll post some of this. Hopefully that clarifies it a little bit. I know it's kind of hard to follow on a podcast sometimes. But when you understand it, it it's super interesting. And so my my big takeaway, man, retail's doing better than we feared. And there is, like, pretty valid evidence that not, like, not shocking, but e-commerce was the huge star that that you know contributed uh, meaningfully to to that that recovery. Yeah, and it's helpful to kind of so we've been talking about earnings, and we're going to cover a bunch here in a minute. And it's kind of you know it's helpful to have this this baseline. So the you know the way I think about it is the 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 water level is forty four point four percent, and you're if you're above that, then you're taking share uh, of online, and if you're below that, then you're losing share, right? So. So it may have felt good to have a 30% growth in your e-commerce business, but actually that was not good enough. You effectively lost share if you, you know, maybe in prior quarters you were losing share, but if if you were, you know, that felt good coming off maybe 15, but you actually, if you weren't north of 44, you actually lost share, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. And even more nefarious, there's a bunch of small specialty retailers that normally grew their e-commerce by like 10% a quarter. And this quarter, they grew it by 30%. And so what they reported is we tripled our e-commerce growth. We're killing it. We went from 10 to 30%. But per your point, the whole market went 44%. So you actually like gate lost share and underperformed the market. But it doesn't sound like that when you say you tripled your e-commerce growth. Yep. Cool. Let's jump into So that's a good macro review. Let's jump into some earnings. The two big ones uh, are Walmart and Target. And I know those are near and dear to your heart. So why don't you walk us through what, what they revealed? Yeah, I will spoiler alert it. 
it was the greatest quarter in the history of Walmart and Target. <laughs> so it it was pretty phenomenal. Um, so it Tur- wa- turns out when the government shuts down your competitors and and uh, keeps you open, it's good. Yeah, and when they send a bunch of money to all your customers, it's it, that's, yes. it's super yeah. helpful. So send all your customers a big check, scare the bejesus out of everyone that they're you know that everything's going to shut down and they're not going to be able to buy food next month, and then close all your competitors. Life can be good, and it was. Uh, so so revenue at Walmart um, for the quarter was up seven point six percent. Way more importantly, um, so that's like sort of comp sales was up seven point six percent. Normally. You know, Walmart's been performing really well and it's like 4% or something. So, so 7.6 is a big number. Uh, super interestingly and importantly, uh, gross profit was meaningfully up at both. So sort of gross profit hit like about 25% for Walmart, which was up like a, a 63 basis points. So that's like, it's hard to move the profitability number. And, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. In the U.S., comp sales, which is Walmart's most robust market, comp sales were up 9.3%, and e-commerce was up 97%. So per our test before, the market was up 54%, Walmart's e-commerce was up 97%. And Walmart's been outperforming the market for, I think now, like nine or ten consecutive quarters, and this is obviously by far the biggest number. So, so that's a monster quarter across the board, and that profitability is particularly important because historically, and it was certainly two in Q1 of this year, a bunch of sales transitioned from stores to e-commerce. And the story on e-commerce was that it was wildly less profitable than um, stores. And so the gross profit goes down when the mix shifts to e-commerce. And gross profit also goes down when the mix shifts to these essential food items that people tended to buy at the beginning of COVID. So in Q2, Two, for profit to go up at the same time that e-commerce went up so much is really indicative of Walmart and others being able to operationalize their e-commerce scale and get profitable in in e-commerce, which is something a lot of people speculated they would never be able to do. Um, And they kind of demonstrated it this quarter. Now, part of that is fewer people bought stuff. There were less transactions. Uh, Transactions at Walmart in-store and online were down 14%, but basket size was up 27%. And so what's going on there is when every visit to the store feels like a health risk and could potentially get you sick, you want to make as few visits as possible. So you consolidate trips, you go less often, and you buy more stuff. And that behavior contributed to all these good results, but it also significantly contributed to the profitability. If that becomes a permanent behavior, that's a very favorable trend for Walmart. The Debbie Downer on Walmart stock after like just reporting, uh, and all these were way wildly above expectations. The analysts totally missed how good a quarter retail was going to have, by the way. So, so huge beat, hugest numbers of all time at Walmart. It's all green lights, um, except that Walmart get, you know, is giving no guidance for the future. And they're saying, like, we're really concerned about the near future. We don't know what's going to happen. We're particularly concerned about Q4. And we feel like a lot of our results were the beneficiary of a lot of government subsidies that have now ended. And it's not clear whether they're going uh, to resume or not. And so they're the 
the kind of story here is retail had a V-shaped recovery, but Walmart and other retailers are very worried that the consumer has not had a V-shaped recovery and that could uh, impact Walmart in the form of a very soft holiday. And we're already in the the very first throes of holiday in this back-to-school period, and the early indications are that people are being conservative and not spending. And, and Walmart talked about the fact that you know, when, when parents aren't sure if their kids are going back to school in person or not, they, they were much more conservative with their spending. So that's the one Debbie Downer in all this is the sort of concern for the future. Did they opine on uh, back to school or even start reading the tea leaves on holiday? They did. So they like said that it's been a very un- unusual back to school and that, uh, that spending has been slower for back to school. And they, they explicitly said that they're worried about holiday and they mostly like just joked that they don't know and can't predict. Like an analyst asked them a question and Doug McMillan answered like, we're laughing because we're looking at each other and we were hoping you could tell us what's going to happen in uh, Q4 because we have no idea. So the, you know, they're not giving guidance. They don't know, but they are worried uh, that they've been the beneficiary of a bunch of, you know, uh, consumers that were artificially bolstered by federal programs and that that gravy train is, potentially not going to continue. And so they're worried what that could mean in terms of, of uh, tightening of, of belts of their core consumer. And the story at Target was pretty similar. Also, their best quarter ever. Um, their Q2 comps were up 24.3%. Same store sales were up 10.9%. And their, their e-commerce crushed it even more. Uh, e-commerce was up 195%. Um, and one thing I always like to remind people about with Target's e-commerce, and this was more acutely true this time, the overwhelming majority of all ta- ca- Target's e-commerce orders get fulfilled from their stores. So they do ship from stores. They they have a system to ship products from every store. They do a lot of curbside pickup uh, uh, via their shipped um, uh, acquisition, and they do a lot of home delivery from the stores, which is all e-commerce via ship. And so this quarter, they said, hey, 75% of all our e-commerce was fulfilled from the stores. And so just a thing to think about that's wildly different between Walmart and Target, Walmart is trying to be an everything store and sell, you know, 40 million items, uh, mostly shipped from fulfillment centers and from their marketplace partners, which is increasingly important uh, part of their business. Target is mostly trying to sell the stuff that they have on the shelves in the store. And so they're very different approaches. The Target approach helps profitability a lot. Target was a classic example of they had great sales in Q1, but poor profitability. And so in Q2, again, their profitability was way up, up 30% uh, for the quarter year over year. And their uh, what was a particularly fast runner was same-day services. So ordering stuff online and either picking it up that day or having it delivered that day. So same-day services at Target were up 273%, which debunks a lot of people that are like, Customers don't really want stuff that fast. And then one other jewel that came out of Target's earnings was that a new brand that we've talked about, a store brand, and I I frequently talk about Target being one of the best product brand builders in all of retail. They launched a new food brand in September of 2019 called Good & Gather, and they announced uh, that the last quarter that brand surpassed a billion dollars in sales. So that's Phenomenal to be able to launch a new brand and sell a billion dollars in the in the first nine months. And I pointed out on Twitter and maybe even started a little Twitter feud that, you know, no CPG or D to C has been able to duplicate that kind of success. And that spurred all kinds of uh, good dialogue and a, a couple of uh, sort of personal attacks. But it is what it is. 
<laughs> yeah, a lot of people get really uh, hung up on definitions around these things. It's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that like any of these models can be successful, and there are examples of success at all of them. They can all also fail. Like pe- people look, you know, looked at my good and gather number, and they're like, "Oh, well, yeah, it's easy for a retailer." Like they have all this traffic and all this audience built right in, and I'm like, "Yeah." But you don't say that when the that the store brand of shoes way underperforms Nike, or when the the Best Buy brand of cables doesn't sell as well as Monster cables, or you know stuff like like brands beat store brands all the time. So it's it's not a given that a store can launch a brand. And frankly, there's a bunch of stores out there that are desperately trying to launch brands and not having any success. So I feel like you got to give your props to Target that's that has a very consistent track record of doing it really well. Yeah. And then, you know, the the thing, I know you hit on this, but I, I just want to put a kind of fine point on this is, so these guys, so so the brick and mortar guys that have online, they've had this weird thing where as, as e-commerce has increased, it's hurt their profitability. But we didn't see that this time. Um, do, you, do you have a theory on why that is? Yeah. So it's a combination. The, the I, I think there is proof in these numbers that they are able to leverage volume to be more efficient. So when they get more orders, as these numbers grow, they are being able to be more efficient, which improves profitability. They also, the, the, the shift, the reduction in transition and the increase in basket size is very favorable to, e- to profitability, right? So you put you know, you ship fewer boxes and put more stuff in each box and e-commerce, that's cheaper. Like you, you pick more items per order and, and have fewer, you know, separate picking sessions. Uh, that's cheaper. And then particularly in the case of Target, when you're uh, mostly fulfilling this stuff same day, that's actually cheaper. A, Target charges money for that, so they make money on it. But then B, they're they're not paying shipping costs on all this stuff and they're not paying separate warehouse costs and like these are all like I- items that are sitting on the target shelf and they're selling to someone via e-commerce but the, they're fulfilling it you know much like they would in the store uh so a combination of all those things i think are helping profitability but my big takeaway from those two retailers is that there is a future where a very significant portion of their sales are digital and they are able to be profitable there and i actually think that's bad news for a bunch of slightly smaller retailers that have not proven they can be able to be profitable. Because if these guys, if a few big players get over the hump and get profitable and the rest of the industry doesn't, it's just another differentiator that causes the the rich to get richer and, and sort of opens up a bigger gap uh, on the competition. Yeah, it could also... Um... Yeah, so they you could see these guys going to investors and saying, "Hey, we've proven we can get this profitable. Now we're going to go through a, a, an investment phase and really start to kind of sh- you know shoot at Amazon. They're so far away they would never get there, but you know you could see this emboldening kind of Target and, and Walmart specifically to to really kind of double down on this and, and kind of know the model now and and take a much bigger swing at catching up with Amazon. It'll be interesting to see if if that's kind of a 2021 theme that we see oh for sure and one area where it's totally clear that's going to happen is grocery because that is a place where they can catch amazon right like amazon's arguably already behind walmart and grocery target has aspirations in grocery but hasn't been super strong but that's an area where like for sure you'll see them invest because that that is a white space that you know amazon's still struggling to win as well did you so so previously you had kind of 
suggested that Walmart was kind of making a lot of their e-commerce numbers by rolling out grocery in, in more places, um, specifically the curbside pickup. Um, is there any breakdown you've seen of was was that they was did grocery and a it big was part of this? unhelpful because it was also awesome. So so historically, like a lot of the e-commerce growth has come from grocery. It appears this quarter, like the e-commerce growth uh, growth was was distributed much broader across all categories. So grocery was up uh, and, you know, uh, up significantly. But general merchandise was also up more significantly. And so the the mix had shifted to a more profitable, broader basket of e-commerce sales. And even apparel, which is like the big dog in all of this, like uh, and by dog, I mean the worst performing category, even apparel was up at at Walmart and Target, which w- was not the case in Q1. It's all of us that have gained our uh, COVID-19 pounds needing some sweatpants. Exactly. You need sweatpants either way, but yeah, for sure. Like a few people are riding the Peloton every day and need a smaller sweatpants and a bunch of people are uh, enjoying uh, more cheesecake and need bigger sweatpants. Yeah. And curbside groceries. Boom. Exactly. Put that cheesecake right in my trunk. Yeah. So uh, another category of retail that seems like they're doing really well in COVID is the home improvement guys. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. Uh, so Home Depot uh, also announced uh, their revenue, total revenue was up 23%. Same store sales, 25%. And not to be outdone, their e-commerce was up 100%. And they announced 60% buy online pickup in store. So these guys have really gotten some religion around this. And, and you know, you're seeing really material BOPUS numbers, which, which is interesting. Uh, also Lowe's, uh, and, and you know, another macro trend is um, one of the guests we've had on the show calls it uh, cocooning. Where since we've all been in our homes uh, here for so long uh, due to COVID, a lot of people are kind of looking around and saying, you know, it's time for me to patch that hole in my wall that I had there for six months in my office and I wasn't spending time in my office and I'm actually looking at a hole that needs to be patched. Uh, so, so you know, I think that's part of this this cyclical thing in addition to COVID is people are, are because they're spending so much time at home, they're investing in home improvement. Um, so not to you know, compare, uh, Lowe's also came out, Lowe's Home Improvement, um, and their their sales were up 35% overall, and their e-commerce was 135%. So just some amazing numbers coming out of those retailers as well. Yeah, yeah. Good time to be in those categories. And they tend to be BOPUS because a, a lot of their products are harder to ship. And so again, like Target, they tend to mostly sell the store inventory. Yeah, and that is a feast or famine. So that was the feast and what was over on the famine side of the yeah. street. Yeah, so I mentioned apparel, right? So that's been the tough category. Kohl's, this is interesting, right? Kohl's had a net sales decrease. Now, they, they were, they're were they non-essential and they were forced to close for, for a portion of the quarter. Um, so their net sales were down almost 23%, 22.9%, which was actually better than the analysts estimated, right? So the analysts were expecting a really gloomy quarter, and Kohl's lost money, but they lost less than the analysts were expecting. Um, and then they came out and said, but we're not even going to tell you what our same store sales was because it's so messed up from COVID and all these store closings, which that was a big red flag to analysts and their their stock really took a dive. And then next to them was TJ Maxx reporting. And TJ Maxx is interesting because while all of apparel is struggling, TJ Maxx is one of the the retailers that you generally talk about as being better situated because they're so value oriented. They, 
you know, in theory, if consumers are, are more concerned about the economy and they're spending less, then, you know, more of their wallet should go to TJ Maxx. And in, in the past, they've been more resilient to dips in the apparel market than other retailers. They came in at, at uh, $6.67 billion for the quarter versus like almost $10 billion last quarter. So they, they lost $200 million on the quarter. And a couple of interesting things there. They said, by the way, same-store sales are going to drop 10 to 20% next quarter. And one of the things we've seen is briefly when the stores reopened, we had a big spike. And people, a bunch of pundits were talking about this, that, that you know, as soon as TJ Maxx opened, they filled back up. So, you know, all this is coming back quickly, for example. And, you know, I think you shared some viral pictures of a full TJ Maxx. They kind of said that, like, we've really seen our traffic wane after, a, you know, a short, a short surge after they opened. And so I, I think if the strong apparel retailers are issuing warnings like that and having performance like that, it really bodes poorly for the entire apparel category. And the fact that Target and Walmart were kind of up in apparel. People are consolidating trips. Like being a specialty apparel retailer just really sucks right now. And the worst thing in the world is to be a specialty apparel retailer in a mall. Yeah. The the one exception to that was Lululemon. I don't have their quarterly numbers handy, but you know, I think yeah. people are kind of like, if I'm going to be stuck at home, I might as well get me some yoga pants. So I yeah. know you they and I also are just happen to have some pants. weird gravity defying magic juice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, more more props to them. I don't I don't remember their numbers offhand, but they're yeah, they're a total outlier. And and, uh, you know, I, I had to go to an, uh, a mall last weekend and get my phone fixed. My iPhone, I unfortunately dropped. And uh, yeah, most of the stores are closed. Stores that were closed had no one in them. And then there's a line of 20 people waiting to get into the Lululemon and the Apple store. Yeah. Our Apple stores aren't even open. No. Ah. Sad. Yeah. That would have been a bummer with my broken phone. Yeah. You would have had to wait. Cool. Well, this is uh so so now we're kind of at this part in the quarterly reporting where we can put together a sort of a leaderboard. So let me start at uh, the bottom here. So um, eBay had a really good uh, showing at twenty six percent. Prior to that, they were they were significantly below e commerce. So e commerce was at fifteen percent pre COVID, and eBay was kind of one or two points on their GMV growth. Um, so here now, again, we have this this watermark of 44.5%. So eBay uh, didn't quite get there, but definitely you know uh, surprised a lot of folks with how well they did. Um, and then if we take Amazon, I would say Amazon was in line. So Amazon grew 41% overall, but you have to remember a, a good 40 to 50% of their business is international. If we just look at the US, it was 44%, which to me gives credence to the US census number if if Amazon was way out of bounds with that because they are such a large part of of e-commerce it would make you kind of scratch your head and go hmm what was that um and then inside of Amazon the third party uh which I tend to care the most about grew 53% so um you know a little bit faster than than e-commerce walking up that that tree um the next one is a big step up so so now we have 44 and a half which is kind of the the where the tide is and then effectively double that rate you have shopify and walmart tied at 97 percent e-commerce growth um and then just above that home depot at 100 percent and then we get into the rarefied air so we now have lows at 135 percent so we're if at a if we're at a base of 44 and they did 135 that's a easily a 3x 
Um, and then a step above that is Etsy at 147. And Etsy had this huge win because they have all these makers that make masks. So when masks became mandatory, everyone was tired of wearing the boring, uh, you know, uh, pale blue surgical mask. And a lot of people want a statement on their mask or have a themed mask or Star branded Wars. mask. Star Wars. Uh, yes. Or, or whatnot. Um, uh, that really benefited Etsy. So they were up 147%. And then at the very tippy top of this leaderboard, we we have Target at 195% overall e-commerce. But then if we if we kind of peel out the same day at 300%, and I'm sure that's from a small base, but but still, um, it's really interesting to see how all these things compare. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, this you know, I I think all of this illustrates that yeah, we have had a huge shift to e-commerce. I think I think it's kind of undeniable when you look at these numbers in totality. It'll be interesting to see how much of it sticks. Like, will it revert as people go back to their old habits if they ever do? Or or are they, you know, permanently more digital shoppers? One of the things, and this, my information on this is three or four years old. One of the things I would always hear at retailers is that the store people would always say, yeah, e-commerce is strategic and important, but it's really only like three stores and we've got 3,000. You know, it's always compared to, you know, it's always a small percent of their overall business. Do, do you think this will change that or has have people already kind of gotten over the hump on that? Oh, no, I think it totally has. I've talked to a bunch of like head digital people at retails and, and they all tell the same funny story that like when they were recruited for their job, they were told how important digital was to the, to the retailer and how central and strategic it was. And you're going to be on the CEO's leadership team. And and like the joke was that was the last day you saw the CEO was on the recruiting trip, right? Like you took the job, you went there and then per your point, you found out like, that every, everybody's focused on their core business and they all looked at uh, e-commerce as the redheaded stepchild. And since COVID has happened, the CEO has been sitting in all of their offices, right? Like they're suddenly invited to all the meetings, like what investments do we need to be making? What do we need to do to stay ahead of the competition? Like uh, the the conversations have gotten much more real um, at all of these retail stores and I guess that's the positive. The negative has been, you know, we talked about historically the that business hasn't been super profitable and retailers have also been pretty tolerant of that. They've just been trying to capture growth and not worry about profitability. But now it seems like retailers and leadership teams are a lot more focused on the profitability of that those sales as well. You got to take the good with the bad there. Cool. So that's uh, that's kind of our quarterly report and, and a really good look at what COVID has done uh, to e-commerce. What other news do you want to talk about? Yeah, there's a few things um, that were interesting to me. So Simon Malls uh, concluded their acquisition of Brooks Brothers. So Brooks Brothers is one of many bankrupt retailers and this this entity called Spark, which is a partnership of authentic brands and Simon Malls bought them out of bankruptcy. And they've done this a few times before. They previously had bought an Aeropostale, Forever 21, a Lucky brand earlier this year. And, you know, it's it's always interesting. Some people are like, oh, you know, are they going to be a good retail operator? They're competing with their other tenants, you know, which kind of is the, the complaint people make against Amazon as well. So ironic that it's happening in brick and mortar. If if uh, the independent team couldn't make Brooks Brothers work, how is how is Spark going to make them work? It's you know there are all these different perspectives, but to me 
it these these acquisitions seem like they've been super safe. Spark is buying these on fire sale prices. So they're basically paying less for the retailer than the value of the inventory in the retailer stores. So if they are totally unsuccessful at running the brand or getting any value out of the brand, they could just liquidate the inventory and be made whole. And in Simon's case, they're protecting a bunch of rent, right? Like, they, you know, while, as long as these retailers are growing concerns, uh, they pay rent to Simon. If they close, they they don't pay rent. And worse, that triggers co-tenancy cla- uh, clauses with other tenants that will then want to negotiate and get out of their leases. So for a variety of reasons, this seems like a pretty safe strategy. And I think they've said they have a bigger pool of money if there are other good bargains to be had. And that leads me to my second news item. One of the big rumors is the next one that they're they're contemplating buying is a much larger one. It's JCPenney out of bankruptcy. And the the argument would be the same. That would be a much bigger acquisition because there's just more inventory, more book value. But so there, Spark is rumored to be one of the bidders on, on JCPenney. The other bidder that I'm curious, if you have a position on, Scott, is... There's been a lot of rumors that Amazon is looking to buy JCPenney stores, not to run them, but to turn them into mini fulfillment centers in the mall. The, and the theory is Amazon just needs more space. This is going to be cheap space. And there have been a bunch of pundits that have talked about, oh, this is super smart and Amazon's for sure going to do this. And turning the mall into a mixed use thing that's both doing like fulfillment and, you know, they could have curbside pickup at the mall and all these things. Like there, there's been a lot of talk about that being a potential good fit. And so at the moment, the two big suitors that are rumored for JCPenney are uh, the Simon Spark entity and Amazon. And I heard just today that the judge called all the the parties in, the bankruptcy judge for JCPenney called all the parties in and kind of scolded them and said, hey, this is taking way too long. You guys are too dug in. Like you you need to come up with a solution here to to resolve this quickly. Hmm. Yeah, it, on the surface, you kind of say, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, malls aren't designed to be fulfillment centers. But but here's what's happened for the first time ever it, that's really interesting is, so, so you have you have three commercial real estate markets. You have office space, uh, warehouse space, and then retail. And for, you know, forever, retail was orders of magnitude above, you know, like three to four X uh, warehouse. Warehouse was the cheapest. And just to kind of put some numbers on it. Let's just use ten dollars a square foot a year for um, warehouse, and then thirty to forty for retail, and then office park. Depending on the tier, if it was class A, B, or C, was kind of in the middle there. So maybe like fifteen dollars a square foot. So for the first time, all that has inverted. So warehouse space is now more like twenty a square foot because supply and demand has kicked in. If you remember your economics, um, there is a huge demand for warehouse space now because. You know, Walmart and, and Target and all these guys we just talked about growing 100%, they, they, they have a, you know, a newfound desire and appetite for a lot of warehouse space. All those you know, merchants on Shopify, et cetera. Um, office space obviously is in a huge decline right now, and then so is mall retail. So for the first time, those lines have crossed, and it, it's not inconceivable that now you could, you know, Amazon could be looking at, uh, you know, 25 for existing warehouse and retail space at 15. And that delta is enough where you could say, you know, I could take that JCPenney box and, you know, essentially do some upfit, put in my loading docks uh, on one side. You know, they like these kind of double-sided cross-docked kind of things 
product comes in one side and then goes out, uh, customers on the other side. It, it's not inconceivable that the math actually makes sense um, from a building perspective. Now, there's there's some logistics, you know, so a lot of these things are in heavy traffic centers. So that's going to be hard to have, you know, 18 wheelers coming in and out and some of that. But those stores were supplied by 18 wheelers. You know, they, they do have some loading docks. They're going to need a lot more. Um, so, so, so I think it is a thing that Amazon would, you know, the economics actually could make sense, but literally six months ago, it would make no sense. Yeah. I, I think the economics potentially could make sense, but I still think it's overhyped. I don't think it's going to happen. And I, I should say, I'm sure Amazon will end up owning some former JCPenney's locations. Amazon already owns a couple malls that's converted into a fulfillment mm-hmm. center. So, could that happen again? Yes. Is Amazon buying a ton of space and are they going to go kick the tires on any any potential space? Sure. Like they, they have 200 million square feet of space in the U.S. and they've they've already announced building plans for another 100 million. So they're big leasers. And per your point, like the the price for that retail space is way lower than it used to be. But I think the logistics is a bigger problem. I think whenever Amazon opens a fulfillment center, uh, there's a huge controversy around the negative impact on traffic patterns around it right like and the the volume of trucks just like destroys the area and i just i just don't think apple and amazon want to be competing with you know apple having customers trying to drive to a store and amazon having uh uh, trucks trying to get in and out. It, it it just doesn't make that much sense. Like I think Amazon's really good at t- kicking the tires on any deal, and I'm sure they've they've had some conversation. But, but I I think it's gone. People whipped up into a lather a little bit too much. Yeah. And uh, last topic. I know we're we're tight on time, but we're sitting here in August, and we wouldn't be in the retail world if we didn't start thinking about holiday. Um, Halloween's right around the corner. We've got Prime Day coming in October. What and then the holiday? What are you hearing from holiday as you parse through all the these comments from retailers? Yeah. So I unfortunately would have to say that retailers are mostly pessimistic about this holiday. The again, desperately want to be wrong, and and there's more uncertainty than there's ever been before. And so I think retailers are allowing for the fact that they could be pleasantly surprised. But there is kind of a perfect storm of negative things. I, th- I think retailers are really concerned that that um, we have not seen the bottom yet of the economic circumstance for consumers. Um, and so all those federal programs kind of, you know, bolstered a bunch of people. You know, we still have like way more people unemployed than traditional, like we three times as many people unemployed as we did in February before this all started. And, you know, a ton of the safety net is going away for all those people. So retailers are concerned about their consumer's health or their consumer's financial health. Uh, in some parts of the country, there still are huge health concerns. That varies wildly from state to state. And that is keeping a lot of people away. As all of these sales shift to e-commerce, we are running into huge capacity problems with shipping for e-commerce, right? So we're... The, all the e-commerce numbers you just talked about, Scott, that basically has all the logistics companies in the United States running at holiday levels now. And so if there's incremental spending for holiday, there just isn't going to be capacity to deliver it, right? And so, you know, what do, uh, you know, suppliers do in a, when there's a constrained supply and greater demand? They increase prices. And so the United States Post Office, FedEx, and UPS have all announced like the largest surges for holiday they ever have. And they're making customers sign up for their 
allotments of shipping now, and they're not letting, particularly smaller retailers that don't have leverage, they're not giving them all the capacity that they've asked for. So a bunch of retailers are going to be artificially constrained on how much they can ship. And then, you know, God forbid something bad happens to the U.S. post office between now and then. They're the biggest facilitator of all that. So that's a big risk. And then, you know, because of health concerns, a bunch of the occasions that consumers normally have around holiday are not going to happen in the usual way. So people are going to go to less parties. They're going to need to dress up for those parties less. They're going to give less gifts. They're not going to go trick-or-treating as much. So people are going to buy less costumes. They're going to give away less candy. There, there are all these ways in which you stack all that up, and there's the potential for a very soft holiday. Now, there are things that could go well and change that, but you know, I think I think people are hoping for better, but preparing for the worst. Awesome. I I love your continued enthusiasm. Yeah, I mean, and again, I I want to be as wrong about that as I was at the speed of the retail recovery. So uh, here's hoping that I eat more crow next week. But Scott, that's going to be a great place to leave it because predictably we have used up all our allotted time. Uh, as always, if uh, we spurred some some topic that you want to explore further, please hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. For sure, this would be a good time to jump on iTunes and give us that five star review. I know you've been you know waiting to do it, and this uh, is the perfect show to do it. So we sure appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 